Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Whiskey Rebels, the only podcast about alcohol where the hosts aren't getting drunk. I'm Drew Brackbill. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm John Nelson. And today we're going to be having another balanced, sober discussion about the economic, philosophical, and regulatory history of absinthe, a drink that has quite the controversial reputation. In fact, this reputation was so controversial that it was banned in the U.S. and many European countries for almost a century. Yeah, and I like I thought it was still banned. But I guess no, the, like, it's we'll legal now. This, but, like, it's yeah. legal now, but it very recently became legal. I just again. assumed, like yeah. I just assumed, it's always been banned. It always will be banned. No, actually, I mean prior to and, and sometimes despite these bans, numerous artists and writers living in France, especially in the late 19th and early 20th century, early, early th- <laughs> in early 20th centuries were noted absinthe drinkers uh, and featured absinthe in their work. And some of these included Edouard Manet, Vincent van Gogh, Oscar Wilde, and Emile Zola, and many other renowned post-ban artists and writers similarly drew from this cultural well, including Ernest Hemingway and Pablo Picasso. Uh, but absinthe, as we said, you know, was illegal for a very long time, and its reputation as an especially dangerous alcohol comes from its most memorable ingredient, wormwood. Actually, the name absinthe itself also comes from the scientific designation for wormwood, which is Artemisia absinthium. And the plant contains a biological compound called thujone, which in large doses can cause epileptic-like convulsions and kidney failure. It sounds pretty dangerous to yeah, me. So. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not surprised that it, if, if it actually includes that, it was probably least feared, if not banned. Um, and absinthe was, for many years, believed to cause these psychedelic effects due to the presence of the compound. This, along with its bright green color, led poets, artists, and writers, like the ones we mentioned, to refer to it as the Green Fairy. Um, In recent years, however, scientists have found pretty conclusive evidence that absinthe doesn't actually contain enough thujone to cause these effects, um, and absinthe's reportedly trippy impact on the human brain is probably uh, due to the fact that it's just extremely potent alcohol. And it is a very, very strong spirit. Uh, It's about... for uh, 45 to 74 percent ABV, depending on uh, the method for preparation and you know, the particular distillery that, distillery that produced it, um, it's actually so strong that the proper way to uh, to drink absinthe involves involves a, a process of watering it down uh, before you drink it. the The traditional French French preparation involves placing a sugar cube on top of a special slotted spoon. You place the spoon like, over a glass filled with like a little bit of absinthe. And then you just pour ice water over the sugar cube to mix uh, the water and the sugar into the absinthe. Um, so the final uh, you know, concoction usually contains about one part absinthe and three to five parts water. Um, the water dilutes the spirit, uh, and you know, like absinthe contains a lot of ingredients uh, with poor water solubility, uh, like anise, uh, fennel, and star anise. Uh, so these <laughs> i know you sorry josh was uh before the episode started josh was like making sure he pronounced those correctly so he did he did a very yeah. good job <sighs> so close to pronouncing the word anus <laughs> i hate you guys so much <laughs> anyways uh these components come out of the solution and they sort of cloud up the drink uh so this resulting milky sort of opalescent look is called uh the louche which means uh, opaque or shady in french um after dilution absinthe gives off this very strong herbal aroma um, and produces flavors that sort of blossom or bloom in the drink. Uh, it actually brings out subtleties that you otherwise wouldn't notice with if you were just drinking it neat. Um, it's actually possibly the oldest and uh, purest method of preparing absinthe. It's usually referred to as the French method. And we, we uh, 
guess this weekend we went and tried it at a bar. Mention that later on. Um, yeah. We tried it neat mixed mixed. Yeah, into we mixed cocktail. we tr- we tried it mixed into cocktails, so we didn't really have it exactly this way. So we didn't really drink it right. We, yeah. we didn't drink it I necessarily mean, correctly. But so I yeah that's, I didn't, that's another way that it's historically been taken. But, yeah. So I didn't necessarily. But by get itself, you're not really you're not really supposed to drink it just by itself. And very, I mean, people did do that, but it was the right way to drink it was you were supposed to water it down. Yeah, but and if they didn't realize that, that's where the, they saw the green fairy. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, that may have been that may have been it. <laughs> yeah, so and as we as we just talked about, there's other ways of doing it. Um, probably the the other more common version is called the Bohemian method. Um, it's a recent invention that involves the use of fire, which is always fun when mixed with alcohol. Uh, just like the French method, a sugar cube is placed on a slotted spoon. Over a glass containing a shot of absinthe, the sugar is pre-soaked in alcohol and usually more absinthe, uh, and then it's set on fire, which is probably quite the spectacle. Uh, the flaming sugar cube is then dropped into the glass, which ignites the absinthe. Then a shot glass full of water is added to douse the flames so the alcohol doesn't get all burned up and you lose your precious absinthe. Um, this method actually produces a strong, dr- a strong dr- bleh, drink stronger than the French method. Um, but despite its visual appeal, uh, most experienced absinthe drinkers do not recommend this bohemian method and consider it a modern gimmick. Uh, they say kind of can take away some of the flavors and yeah, it can actually be kind hazard. of it's yeah. actually kind of dangerous. Yeah, lighting alcohol on fire you is spill that on yourself, usually it, yeah. not a good idea. Yeah, and this discussion of the French and bohemian methods, I, I think, is, has positioned us perfectly to talk about the history of absinthe because it is a very continental drink, continental in the European sense. It's originated in the 1700s in Cuvée, Switzerland, and Although there's some evidence for wormwood-flavored wines having been around since ancient Greece, even, absinthe as a strong spirit produced with these flavors of the anise, and star anise, fennel, and even wormwood, uh, especially wormwood, which gives it its name, that, that, that drink is a, very much a product of more recent times. And according to popular legend, absinthe began as an all-purpose patent remedy created by Dr. Pierre Ordinaire, who was supposed to be a French doctor living in Cuvée around the 1790s. But the exact date, of course, varies by account, as these things tend to. And we see a kind of ongoing theme yeah. in a lot of our episodes. <laughs> Nobody's of, really sure, you know. Of, of both, We're yeah, sure, sure, but not, sure of both, you know, of both yeah. the inaccuracies of history. But we also see, like, a lot of people try to use alcohol for medicine, or like that was medicine. Yeah. Um, back in the day, and whether it actually cured diseases or actually helped people. I don't know. Um, I mean, it might have. It might have there are some benefits. I mean, bit. honestly, like I sometimes will take a shot of whiskey for a sore throat. That, that actually does really help sort of soothe mm-hmm. the pain. It's you know, yeah. it's not going to cure a throat infection, but it'll you know. That might help. And absinthe did experience uh, it did experience a century of explosive growth and popularity uh, before it was eventually banned. Alcoholist historians believe that absinthe became popular in France because it was first given to French soldiers in the colonies during the 1840s to try and prevent malaria, which is interesting. Uh, when the soldiers returned to France, they brought their taste for absinthe back with them. Absinthe was traditionally consumed in bars, bistros, and cabarets. It gradually became so popular in France that by the 1860s, the hour of 5 p.m. was called the Green Hour. Absinthe was consumed by all social classes, from the wealthy to the urban working class. And by the 1880s, mass production had caused the price of absinthe to drop significantly. And by 1910, the French were drinking 36 million liters of absinthe per year. Uh, this is still only a drop in the bucket, however, compared to their annual consumption 
of almost five billion liters of wine. We we knew know that the French love their wine. Yeah, I don't know that they have so what five billion liters. That's almost enough wine to numb the collective existential angst of the French people. <laughs> almost. That's a good joke. <laughs> um, but um. I think clearly not because the existential angst is still palpable to this day. <laughs> I think they've only increased wine consumption since. But, <laughs> but um, absinthe is consumed in other locations besides France and its uh, native home of Switzerland as well. Uh, it also gained popularity in Spain, uh, Great Britain, the U.S., and the Czech Republic. Uh, New Orleans actually has a really strong cultural association with absinthe. Um, it's actually credited as the birthplace of the Sazerac which is probably the earliest absinthe cocktail and uh, maybe the earliest American cocktail as well. Um, we actually, I, John mentioned earlier, we actually, the three of us actually went out and tried uh, the Sazerac this weekend. It's, it's a very memorable drink. Um, it's, this, it's a very like, strong sort of licorice flavor that comes through, uh, mostly because of the uh, Anna's and uh, the absinthe. Yeah, I mean, we, we did go out to the bar specifically to try absinthe because we wanted to try it before talking about it. Uh, and frankly, I mean, it is a very punchy drink. It's very, very powerful and very botanical and in my opinion the anise taste takes a little getting used to uh though it wasn't as overpowering as something like a sambuca that just tastes like straight licorice but it was very it was cool i would try it again and i would be interested in trying it like with the french method you know pouring water into it over a little slotted spoon i mean that i just think it sounds kind of cool. and i actually want to try the bohemian method just because i think fire is pretty <laughs> like fire that on fire. Fire. yeah i mean the drink we had also had whiskey in it and whiskey is also very strong yeah um so it was hard to necessarily parse out licorice flavor that could have also been because i had like five or six beers beforehand yeah but um but i definitely i do definitely want to try it again yeah Yeah, um yeah and as we said before it is a very strong drink um there's two predominant methods of making absinthe there's distilling and cold mixing uh so distilled absinthe is produced in a way that's pretty similar to how uh high quality gin is produced botanicals are initially uh macerated in distilled base alcohol before being redistilled to exclude bitter principles and impart the, the kind of desired complexity and texture to the drink. Um, the distillation of absinthe produces this colorless alcohol around 72% ABV. Uh, that, that might be reduced in bottled clear to produce a, a blanche or la blue style um, of this sort of clear absinthe, or it can be colored to create a vert, verte? I think it's verte. Verte, verte probably. Um, so, yeah, uh, using this uh, sort of nat- either natural or artificial coloring. Um, and traditional absinthe do obtain their green color strictly from the chlorophyll of whole herbs, which is extracted from the plants during the secondary uh, maceration. The step involves steeping plants as, such as petite wormwood, hyssop, and melissa, among a number of many of other herbs, into the distillate. Uh, chlorophyll from these herbs is extracted in the process, giving the drink its famous green color. The step also provides a herbal complexity that is typical of high-quality absinthe. This natural coloring process is considered critical for absinthe aging, since the chlorophyll remains chemically active. Uh, The chlorophyll serves as a similar role in absinthe that tannins do in wine or brown liquors. After the coloring process, the resulting product is diluted with water to the desired percentage of alcohol, and the flavor of absinthe tends to improve considerably with storage, and many pre-banned distilleries age their absinthe in settling tanks before bottling. So as opposed to whiskey, it seems that absinthe actually does change kind of like wine in the bottle. Um, yeah. I know with whiskey, it's in the ca- in the uh, in the barrel, it gets better and better and better. But as soon as you take it out of that barrel, it's you're, you're kind of locked in that flavor. Yeah, and, and back in ye olden times, uh, absinthe was often bottled in clear glass bottles, and 
over time, as the chlorophylls aged, they would go from green to brown. Hmm. And if you had a brown absinthe, that was actually considered a good thing because it meant that it was colored you know, with the natural botanicals and not with mm. other potentially dangerous adulterants for coloring. Mm. Uh, and that was considered a good sign. But in modern times, they often bottle it in a darker bottle so that this, the light doesn't cause that browning effect because the green is preferable. That makes sense. But although distillation is really the proper way to make absinthe, it can also be produced via cold mixing, which is more inexpensive and involves the blending of flavoring essences and sort of artificial coloring with commercial alcohol. And this is sort of similar to how most flavored vodkas are produced, and it's really considered by experts to be an inferior method of producing absinthe. Um, and in fact, it really almost isn't absinthe at all, but because most countries have no legal definition for absinthe, unlike other spirits like whiskey, brandy, or gin, producers can label a product as absinthe without really any regard to what's in it or any quality standards whatsoever. And this lack of any naming regulations does allow some cold mixing producers to falsify advertising claims, including referring to their products as distilled, just because the base alcohol itself was created at some point through distillation as most hard alcohols are. And this is used as a justification to sell these inexpensively produced cold mixed absinths at prices comparable to more authentic ones that are distilled directly from whole herbs. And the only country that possesses a formal legal definition of absinthe is Switzerland, and anyone, any any absinthe there that's made through this cold mixing process cannot legally be sold as an absinthe. But in any case, cold mixed absinths can be even stronger than distilled ones, sometimes as strong as 90% alcohol. It is an yeah. interesting kind of contrast to a lot of the legal structures around other drinks that we've talked about in past episodes yeah. with, you know, bourbon requirements in the U.S. and uh, the Reinheitsgebot in Germany. And, you know, I, I, I know, I guess this, I've been kind of skeptical about, you know, the need for that to ensure quality. But, I mean, if this has been a common issue, it actually maybe is a pretty it's... Common issue. Yeah, and you have to be careful that absinthe that you're... I'm doing the air quotes thing. The absinthe that you're drinking actually is absinthe because chances are good that it might just be vodka with green yeah actually and anise flavor in it i actually remember i think it was about a year ago i was doing some research trying to i really wanted to try absinthe um you know i'm out of college and <laughs> i'm out of college first thing i want to do out of college is try absinthe, absinthe as one does <laughs> um and i was i was trying to do some research i'm like all right what what kind of absinthe that i get and i see that our local liquor store has like an absinthe but it is exactly that a quote-unquote absinthe and i actually look at what it is and it's not it's not an absinthe at all it's like some sort of like yeah like this cold mixed garbage that's like not actually very good has like a two out of five on like most reviews and just, yeah you really do have and to it's just go not good and it's it's actually kind of hard to find legitimate absinthe i think the only one i was able to find was like in like downtown dc um at a like a liquor store down there and i i, I haven't actually gone down there to get it because it's expensive and i'm cheap, 60 bucks but, a bottle <laughs> yeah it's a lot of money but um yeah we do see that that problem yeah. so that whole issue with you know like actual distilling versus the sort of cold mixing um, I mean, should come with that. That sort of has added, probably added to uh, <clears throat> absence negative reputation in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, uh, because these unscrupulous makers of the drink would, you know, sort of omit the traditional coloring phase of production in favor of adding things like copper salts to artificially produce a green tint. Um, and the problem with copper salts is it's uh, pretty toxic. It's extremely toxic. Yeah. Um, so this practice might have actually been responsible for some of the alleged toxicity that's historically associated with uh, absinthe. Um, a lot of modern-day producers use uh, similar but non-deadly shortcuts, uh, like using artificial food coloring uh, to produce this green color. 
Um, and at least some cheap absinths produced before the ban were reportedly adulterated with poisonous uh, antimony trichloride, uh, which was probably to enhance the, uh, the, the losing effect that gave it its sort of cloudy appearance when mixed with water. Yeah, that's just that's just really crazy, like how much kind of almost fraud was going on with oh, this yeah. drink. Yeah, yeah. And I'm guessing it was because it was pretty popular, people wanted to get in on the game, they wanted to all right, let's make this like make a really cheap version of this. Yeah, it's a really good cautionary tale for like, a, as opposed to what we would normally say that regulation, you know, our regulation destroys innovation, but like sometimes regulation is very important to ensure people aren't selling something that is completely different from what they're calling it. You know? Yeah, and you have an expectation about what you're buying when you buy absinthe. Probably there should be a law that people have to actually have made an absinthe in order to sell it to you as an absinthe. Yeah. And, and arguably, yeah. you know, the the advent of the internet and kind of the ability for consumers to talk to each other has. Reduce some of reduce that necessity. Some of that necessity I, I, I think it's hardly eliminated it. But it, yeah, no, I, I definitely think it, it'd be hard to argue that it's not necessary in any way. That's I think that's really just like a contract law enforcement thing, though. Like if you're you're making a contract with the buyer, that you're selling what you actually say you're selling, and if you're not selling the actual thing you say you're selling, I think arguably the government should be able to punish you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tricky because like as you mentioned before, like because like the base alcohol was you know distilled at some point, like they can still call it distilled. Yeah, unless you craft your regulation to like say that they can't yeah. do that. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> frankly, you still, like, like the have done. Yeah. But you still need regulations, right? Contract law is only so strong as what does the contract say? Yeah. And if the contract literally says all I'm selling you is absinthe, and there's no legal definition of absinthe, you do need to come up with a definition. Then it's either like yeah. the judge can say like. That's not everyone absinthe. knows what absinthe is, which might not be true. Yeah. Or they well, clearly they just no, nobody, no, nobody does anymore. In, in, I guess not. Yeah. Because yeah. it's been illegal for a hundred years. But, um, yeah. And this this point about poisonous additives is really important uh, for the history of absinthe. Um, this is frequently and probably wrongly been described in modern times as being hallucinogenic, um, but no actual legitimate peer-reviewed study has ever demonstrated absinthe to possess these hallucinogenic uh, properties. The belief that absinthe induces these hallucinogenic properties is probably partly rooted in experiments carried out in the 19th century by French uh, psychiatrist Valentin Magnon. Magnon studied 250 cases of alcoholism and claimed that those who drank absinthe were worse off than those who drank regular old alcohol, um, having experienced rapid onset hallucinations. Yeah, and these accounts by opponents of absinthe, like Magnon, Magnan, Magnan, I'm going to say Magnan, were actually embraced by famous absinthe drinkers, many of whom were bohemian artists or writers who found an extra source of excitement in absinthe's potential danger. Of course they did. <laughs> of course, yeah. You know. uh, but Magnan's methodology was sloppy, and he was biased because he saw absinthe as a social evil, and he saw alcohol, period, as a social evil. And today it's pretty well accepted by scientists that absinthe has no meaningful hallucinogenic effects, and it's widely believed that reports of the hallucinogenic effects of absinthe were attributable to the poisonous adulterants being added to cheaper versions of the drink in the 19th century, like concentrated oil of wormwood, which has a much higher dosages of thujone, impure alcohol, and poisonous coloring matter like copper salts. Yeah, I mean, I know, like when we went out and tried absinthe, I definitely didn't experience any hallucinations. On an unrelated yeah, we note, on an unrelated note, didn't you guys think it was kind of weird that our Uber driver home was like a giant pink rabbit? Right? Really? Yeah. No, I. he was a purple hippo to was, me. He was a green elephant, I thought. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> but, um, oh, absinthe does cause hallucinations. No. Uh, but um, there is still an ongoing debate uh, as to whether absinthe actually does have like other additional effects on a person's brain, uh, aside from just that of a stronger alcohol. 
some writers who have who have you know, more experience drinking absinthe say that it does produce a sort of unique sensation of almost this sort of lucid drunkenness or you know, it's kind of clear-headed inebriation, which might be down to the fact that some of its elements are stimulants and some are sedatives. Mm-hmm. So this leads to some drinkers describing absinthe as producing this very aware feeling when consumed. Um, and you know, modern non-poisonous absence, long-term effects uh, on a drinker aren't actually that well understood or well documented either. Uh, it could have some uh, pain-killing and anti-parasitic properties as well. I'm just trying to figure out exactly what clear-headed inebriation Yeah, I, I didn't really feel that. I mean, we had been drinking, you know, beer and stuff before. Right. Too, but, like, I, it just tasted like licorice in a glass of whiskey to me. But I'm, tr- I'm just trying to, like... Inebriation and maybe clear-headed we drinking n- enough absinthe. Inebriation and more absinthe is what we're learning. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean honestly, maybe. I've had a similar. Cause I mean, you know, as we, as I mentioned, like they're the actual ingredients of it. There's both sedatives and stimulants. Like honestly, I've had experience thing that I think you could probably call like clear-headed inebriation when I've like had coffee like while also drinking. Yeah. Well, okay, like, that, I yeah, think that makes sense. maybe absinthe was sort of the like the four loco. Yeah, the four loco of the eighteen hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say. Yeah, maybe yeah, there's a good reason why we don't have absinthe anymore. Yeah, did they uh, ban Four Loco? Yeah, they it's, did. Well, it's like different they, they now. They had to change it's, the recipe. Because yeah. that stuff was like real bad. Yeah, no, that would that, that actually killed, killed quite a few people. Yeah. Well, I think like two or three people. I never <laughs> tried it because I think I was probably... I was... Good, I think they I banned it before I was 21. Yeah, I was, I was a good boy and I didn't drink before I was 21. Yeah, yeah. Mom, if you're listening. But that is, <laughs> that is true also. Um, yeah. But regardless of these, I didn't have friends that were drunks in high school. <laughs> yeah, same. I mean, all my friends were nerds. Yeah, all my friends were nerds and prudes. <laughs> so like, same. hey, you guys are gonna play D and D later and maybe talk about your new Star Wars movie? And like, you know, there was never booze around us, so we never drank. But but those things aren't incompatible. I guess so. Yeah. Like D and D and booze have probably been staples since, since it was yeah, invented. But, yeah. But that's that's a whole n- whole another <laughs> discussion. But. You know, regardless of these, the actual science behind it, um, absinthe was widely seen as a plague by social conservatives and the temperance-minded people in the late 1800s, as an ongoing theme of this podcast uh, clearly, clearly shows. Um, it was believed to be more dangerous than other forms of alcohol, and frankly, there may be something to that belief, given that absinthe was more probably polluted with dangerous uh, adulterants more than other kinds of alcohol. Uh, some opponents of the beverage believe that excessive absinthe drinking caused effects that were discernible from those associated with alcoholism, uh, such as a belief that led to the coining of the term uh, absinthism, as opposed to alcoholism uh, solely. Uh, the drink was vilified, um, people like Valentin Mignon and others for its supposed harmful effects. Uh, in fact, it was uh, Mignon who first put forward the chemical uh, thujone as a culprit for absinthe's deadly effect on drinkers. Uh, so as thujone occurs naturally in wormwood, it was you know, once widely believed to be an active, active chemical in absinthe. Um, and thujone can produce muscle spasms in large doses. Uh, and you know, while past reports estimated that thujone con- concentrations in absinthe uh, were pretty high, more recent scientific analyses of absinthe samples have actually disproved those estimates. Uh, the more you know, modern uh, scientific studies have demonstrated that only a trace of the thujone present in wormwood actually makes it into the properly distilled absinthe, when um, even when historical methods and materials were being used to create the spirit. So most traditionally crafted absinths, both vintage and modern, uh, fall within the current safety standards. Yeah, and in addition to all of this, um, tests conducted on mice to study thujone toxicity showed that in order for thujone to even be toxic, you'd have to consume about 45 milligrams of it per kilogram of body weight, 
which would require you to drink far more absinthe than could ever be realistically consumed without a person passing out. Actually, the higher sort of percentage of alcohol in absinthe would kill you long before the thujone could even become a factor. So. Yeah, but, you know, people back in the day didn't really know any of that. They didn't know that, you know, the concentration of thujone, they didn't know about cirrhosis of the liver. <laughs> so I just yes, got nice. it in there. Um, <laughs> nice. And, you know, to them, uh, Thujon seemed as, you know, just like the most likely culprit for, you know, any dangerous effects of chemically impure absinthe. Uh, so it became part of this cultural myth that the wormwood and absinthe made it this profoundly different and profoundly more dangerous drink uh, than other hard alcohols. Um, and that led to this kind of public hysteria, which led to bans. Um, in the early 1900s, Belgium, Brazil, the Netherlands, Switzerland, the U.S., and France all banned the sale and distribution of absinthe. Um, these bans were endorsed by winemakers organizations who obviously wanted to reduce competition from absinthe, which I, that's, I feel like that's so easily tied to like most bans is yeah. some, uh, you know, competitive industry just wanting to knock out one of their competitors. Like that classic bootleggers and Baptists all over again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so in Switzerland, a highly publicized uh, murder case was actually the ca- catalyst for the absinthe ban. A man named, uh, Jean Lafray, Jean Lanfray. A uh, Swiss farmer murdered his family and attempted to commit suicide after drinking absinthe. Uh, This led to a petition and later a referendum, which added a prohibition on absinthe into the Swiss constitution. Uh, You know, it's very unlikely that it was just just absinthe in and of itself that led this man to kill his family. He probably had some deep psychological issues. Uh, And actually, although it wasn't really, it was kind of glossed over at the time, because people believed that only absinthe could make you do something so crazy, but Lanfray had been drinking a lot of other stuff at the time, too, including wine, and, and <laughs> he was extremely drunk, and then he just sort of finished it off with absinthe and then went and killed his family. But, yeah. but it could have been it could have been something in the absinthe. Could've, I mean, it could have like, been that copper. It could have been something else. Again, this is just an example of like how one anecdotal piece of evidence causes often can cause the, be the catalyst for laws being made, I mean people you know? people like to find a scapegoat like you know yeah. you could have a kid who you know has like an awful home life and psychological issues and he does something violent and like the media just latches onto oh he played a violent video game yeah. it was doom that did it you know yeah. it was the Vigima games they're ruining the youth I mean you see I mean you see this in pretty much every policy debate yeah ever, it can't possibly you it, be you that our in... you know our basic way of interacting with one another as humans in the 21st century is deeply flawed that can't possibly no, be the reason not. that everyone is disenfranchised and hates one another now no it's got to be video games it can't be that we all live in cities away from the god's green earth it can't so be the constant you're... sound of a, of a highway next to our house that so can't you're criticizing be me for Ludditism <laughs> <laughs> You go full agrarian. Uh, yeah. Um, but, you know, in many other countries, never actually banned the drink. Um, notably Britain, where it had uh, never been as popular as in the continental Europe. And after decades of legal prohibition, absinthe has finally begun to return to popularity again. Uh, most of old absinthe bans from the earlier, early 20th century have been overturned. Uh, Belgium, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and France. Uh, the restrictions on the, the manufacture and sale of absinthe have all been successfully challenged and lifted in recent years. In France, the ban wasn't repealed until 2011, following petitions by the Fédération something, something, something. Fédération de Français, Fédération Français de Spiritu. Uh, yes, it's a, kind of a French distiller uh, trade French organization. Trade group, yeah. yeah. Um, however, French companies had already been producing absinthe for export um, for about a decade by then. So. And one place I, they were exporting it to was the U.S. 
So, uh, so I guess it was legal for consumption other places? Yeah. It's, I think it's legal. It was even after the bans. It was legal for consumption but not production and distribution. Mm-hmm. Much like... But it, almost, it seems like it was the opposite of that because if they were producing it and exporting it, it seemed like it was well, they were legal to it produce. For, it was one specific brewery. It was the Lucid Company or the brand, the company that produced the Lucid brand, and, and they actually fought hard to re- repeal the ban in the U.S. Even though they couldn't sell it in France... They could sell it in the U.S. and they fought to get that ban repealed. Ban repealed, and so they were producing absinthe for export to countries and like Britain, where it was never illegal for about a decade. And then eventually, the French were like, "Oh, I guess it doesn't. You know, they've proven it's safe." And EU, you know, the actual amount of thujan that's in it is lower than, and we can scientifically show that it's lower than what the EU would say is the minimum for safety. So I guess it doesn't make sense for us to ban this anymore. And so they lifted the ban. But actually, as I said, here in the U.S. in 2007, the French Lucid brand of absinthe became the first genuine absinthe to receive a certificate of label approval for importation into the U.S., which is what's required to import an alcohol since uh, 1912, since the ban. So that that followed on efforts to overturn the longstanding U.S. ban. And since that time, many American distilleries have started producing small batch artisanal absinths. But given that it was illegal for nearly a century, absinthe has yet to attain a large market share here in the U.S. But we can all hope that this interesting and historically significant form of alcohol makes a strong comeback in the years ahead. Yeah. I really enjoyed, I mean, I don't know that I, I, I would really enjoy going to, I don't know if they have absinthe bars, but I'd really like to go to, because they come with these little uh, absinthe fountains that have the water that you right. pour down over the spoon with the sugar on it. It just seems like such a, such an eighteen hundreds thing. Yeah. I'm sure there's. I'm sure you could go um, to like one of those like modern speakeasies. Like yeah, one of those fancy places. I'd love to try doing. You something can kind like of that. do like absinthe in the traditional way. Experience the louche. But, but I, I mean, I can imagine like until like last year. I, I mean, I was. I thought absinthe was still illegal. And I thought I, it was a poison that would you know damage my brain. Yeah, until and I, I researched it. Probably yeah. a lot of people still think that, given it's not very popular and it's not. And it's probably kind of, you know, like a, a nice little downward spiral for itself where people don't think it's illegal, so they just kind of assume it's not. Yeah. Um, and then it doesn't get more popular to kind of get rid of that myth. And I think it really is a shame that, that absinthe was so vilified because it, it is really interesting. It's a bright green. It's very beautiful. And all of the advertisements that you see for old absinthe, like I have some here, like, mm-hmm. like look at this stuff. Like, this is really quite cool. Yeah. Friendly like reminder to Drew that this podcast is not a visual well, medium. Yeah, and, uh, you can't see that. For the audience, you can't see this, but you know, to my fellow co-hosts, I mean, the advertisements and and the culture that surrounded absinthe and the Bohemian, the artists who partook of it, was really really interesting. Um, and I think that we, you know, can hope that someday it will return to that level of acceptance in society and inspire, you know, another Ernest Hemingway. And I guess on kind of on a more broad note. Uh, when we first started this podcast, we uh, we decided we kind of wanted to talk about like historical and some of the more you know policy oriented aspects of alcohol, and expected to come in and be like, look at all these ways that governments have made alcohol bad. Yeah. But after like episode six, I'm like, I don't know, I'm kind of changing my tune on this one. Like it seems like maybe regulation <laughs> maybe there of alcohol is a role for maybe, government. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> I think not necessarily right government, but you need definitions for certain yeah. things. Yeah, I mean, I think like there's a really I think there's a good place for government in like certain labeling requirements, you know, because if if consumers are going to be able to like make 
you know, good choices. Like they need the information to do that. And, and if you can just like label like anything as absinthe, then, you know, you can't really, as, as anything as distilled absinthe, like you can't really make like a good decision as a consumer on like what kind of absinthe you're, is worth your money. And the problem arises, you know, the, the counter argument to that is why, why is the government needed to do that? You know, why couldn't a private regulatory, not regulatory, but like why couldn't a, a private organization put their, you know, oh, in order for us to put our label, our stamp of approval on something, you have to prove that your absinthe is actually absinthe. I mean, I think actually yeah. it could be done privately, but mm-hmm. it's the not. question becomes <laughs> like, yeah, it's not. And who also is keeping that private organization from being corrupted by money? Like, you know, but who's keeping, but who's keeping government? Who's keeping government, government corrupted? <laughs> the yeah. argument that I think is most persuasive is that government is more easily corrupted than a private organization. Yeah, I agree but with that. I think that's like the, the eternal sort of conflict is like, which is more easy to corrupt government or a private organization. And, and, argu- and arguably, and this is going a little bit of the like, political science weeds, but you can have like com- competing regulatory agencies in like a private, I, I in a private case. Should. So you could have, you could have like the, you could have like the Brackbill whiskey regulatory agency yeah. and you could have it the Nelson ta- press. It, it would all say like, oh, I don't like this one. It tastes like dirt. <laughs> it has right. to taste like dirt for it to be whiskey. Right. So you, <laughs> you, you can trust me. You could have different regulatory. <laughs> Only the dirtiest whiskeys from the Brackville labeling. You could have company. different labeling organizations that are like, this is certified to be legitimate whatever kind of. You do have that already. But see, that also like kind of makes products. it even an even bigger challenge for the consumer. Because like now do, do I not only have to like worry about like, oh, what, um, like what brand of absinthe do I want? It's also like, oh, Who what brand of absinthe do I want? And like, oh, and which certification do I want? Yeah, like, it, it sort of just adds like another level. And again, like you can have kind of a similar problem with, you know, government like labeling. It's sort of like, oh, okay, well, like what, you know, what interests like contributed to the campaign of like the people who helped write these laws, you know? Yeah. It's, and just because the law exists doesn't make, doesn't mean it's any less complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember looking through some of FDA's laws and there's a difference between vanilla flavored, artificially vanilla flavored, in artificially flavored ice cream and like they're all different like different kinds of percentages yeah. and if you look in like the the actual regulatory code you can know what that is but no consumer actually understands and, and, that. and i think the thing we're you know who keeps the marketing people from coming up with you know fancy looking seals that they can slap on their product that doesn't mean anything you know i mean even they, laws can be co-opted for yeah. that as we well, saw I mean, with they, the Kaboot. like they do that like you see like so many food brands and things and like other products like being labeled as natural yeah, like there's natural literally, no literally no meaning, meaning. to yeah. that well it does have a meaning I not think. in any kind of like no. legal sense i think I it does it actually mm. does it is it is if, in... it, if it was it was recent because i do remember months ago there was like the fda put out a request for comment on whether or not and slash like how it should define natural i don't know maybe that no no maybe yeah, that no. process has moved forward yeah now, i think i think the but... the broad name natural is unregulated but things like naturally flavored or naturally should naturally flavored, yeah. but if you just want to label something like as no yeah natural right. then yeah but even things that are labeled as as usda certified organic are not necessarily always organic and in fact yeah, it the just enforcement means... on these labels is far from perfect yeah and gen- organics a great example of that like Organic basically just means that the produ- the agriculture or the farmer producer paid enough money to get their some USDA bureaucrat to come in and look around. And, yeah, this looks this looks organic. Yep. It's not necessarily actually better for really, you. The only way that you can get good things that are not full of dangerous chemicals is to make them yourself. You know, or but to be fair, we made beer ourselves and it was <laughs> it trash. So that's yeah. also yeah. not maybe, maybe you do need some that might not be a good way either. <laughs> but no, I, I think that. That it, in the modern era, it is so so difficult to tell whether something that you're purchasing is quality or not, and that is really a challenge 
that our generation is going to encounter more and more as the you know the number of companies that are producing actual good quality things that are made by real craftsmen and not you know made with shoddy techniques for the purpose of saving a, a dime on every handbag which turns into 10,000 dimes down the road somewhere which is actually a cost saving you know the profit margin encur encourages innovation but it also i think encourages uh encourages companies to to cut corners and that's unfortunate but absinthe is a great example of this i think you know mm -hmm. it acquired this reputation as a poisonous beverage because in order to drop the cost on it to make it more accessible for the poor they started not brewing it the right way and brewing it with poisonous copper salts or distilling it with poisonous copper salts in it you know so like you're going to see a lot more of that kind of stuff and i just i just hope that I, don't, I don't know i actually disagree with though i think there's a substantive difference between a handbag that's going to fall apart in six months and a handbag that's made of lead or has like razor blades in it sure which yeah. i think is a more like a more proper metaphor to the dangerous absinthe versus just like some sort of I think part crappy of the, quality I think part of the, the Bangladesh versus one made in China out of yeah. cadmium. Yeah, sure. I mean, so, I think the... Although the Bangladeshi ones are... I think part of like the, the danger of absinthe was more just like ignorance. Like I don't think like they knew that copper salts were extremely dangerous. True, but they did know that it was cheaper to put copper salts in a neutral spirit to make it green. That's than, something I think we know a lot more now than yeah. they did back then about like what substances are dangerous, what are not. So, like I don't think it's necessarily as much of a risk of yeah, like you being poisoned, just, you know, a risk of like, you know, paying too much for something that's poorly made yeah. like quality. Anyway, that's an interesting digression, but like, I, I do hope that, I don't know. I hope that this problem gets better in the future and not worse, that we're not mm -hmm. ending up paying way more for things that are way worse. But like the fact that Kanye West can charge people like a hundred dollars for a T-shirt, just because he's Kanye West, doesn't like doesn't encourage me. I feel like that's kind of a survival of the fittest kind of thing going sure. on there, though. Yeah, people are dumb enough to spend that much money; they probably shouldn't have it. Or they should have their hundred dollar Kanye T-shirt, and yeah. like I hope you enjoy that. I, I mean, so. it's it's different people like value things differently. Like maybe for someone like just like owning like a Kanye West shirt is worth that. Like it's, you know, more about the name. I mean, that's yeah. why Apple products are so popular. True. Well, okay. I mean, it's, Apple does It's paying money or quality. They produce are, a good product, but yeah. not for the price it's, that and it's, they it, yeah, charge it's not, for it. I mean, a $2,000. I, I and I love it, but it's not that much better than an Android. A $2,000 PC is way better than a $2,000. Oh, yeah, I was, I was looking at, because um, I'm looking at getting a new laptop for my graphic design work. And, you know, I was looking at MacBook search because everybody's like, oh, yeah, Mac MacBooks, that's like the design industry standard. Like, I can find a PC with, like, better specs than, like, the lowest in MacBook yep. for less than that. Yeah. Anyway, um, we're not even talking about how no, we've gotten, we've gotten way we've into gotten the very weeds. Um, yeah. But uh, that's, I think that's a good time to cut off the episode. Uh, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to subscribe and share us. Um, you can find us on Facebook as uh, the Whiskey Rebels Podcast, or you can like or follow us on Twitter at uh, Whiskey Rebcast. Uh, this has been the Whiskey Rebels. I'm Josh Evans. I'm Drew Breckville. I'm John Nelson. Enjoy our podcast responsibly. Mm -hmm.